Tonight's talk is on generosity. It's interesting sometimes to reflect on how we measure our progress in practice. Even when we tell, uh, we tell ourselves or tell each other not to do it, we know we all do. So how do we measure our practice? Sometimes we, we measure it by concentration. If we feel we're more concentrated, we think our practice is better. Or sometimes we measure it by whether we have exotic experiences while we're meditating. And if we have those, we, we feel like our practice is going better. Or sometimes we might measure it by how long we can stay on the breath or how long we can sit. One way we don't always consider to uh, look at our practice or to look at our progress in practice is the growth in what are known as the ten paramis. Generally, paramis is translated as perfections. So ten uh, spiritual qualities of an enlightened being. I know I haven't always appreciated the paramis as much as I do now. When I first started practicing, they seemed like some nice states of mind that might be worth developing if one had a little extra time. But that's not, um, that's not how uh, I now hold them and how I now see them to be. It's said that the Buddha spent many, many countless lifetimes developing the ten spiritual perfections, our ten paramis, in order to become a fully enlightened one. So the paramis, for those of you who don't know, are generosity, ethical conduct, renunciation, determination, effort or energy, patience, loving kindness, truthfulness, equanimity, and wisdom. So it's said that the Buddha spent uh, four incalculable ages and 100,000 eons developing these qualities that he needed to develop them in order to be a fully enlightened one. We call them perfections, but another translation of these qualities is, or this word parami is crossing to the other shore. Apparently in Chinese Buddhist literature, the character that's used to signify the paramis can mean crossing to the other shore. Interestingly, this is also a term that the Buddha used to describe enlightenment, liberation, crossing to the other shore. So maybe the paramis are not such a detour on our path. I like to call them spiritual strengths. The paramis give us strength to undertake this journey, to relax into life as it is, and to develop depth and wisdom and compassion. 
So within this list of 10 uh, spiritual strengths, we're all going to have some that are more developed. And these are our strengths that we can rely on to help us in this path. And then we'll have others that aren't so strong that we can consciously develop in order to um, give us strength and energy for the path. So I'll be giving eight talks in the next couple months here at the um, Forest Refuge. So that's why I decided to do the paramis. I thought that that would fit nice. So tonight we'll start with the first parami of dana, translated as giving or generosity. And I'd like to start with an inspirational story of the power of generosity. I just came back from teaching in Burma, and we teach a retreat in the Sakain Hills region of Burma for foreign yogis. Um, we teach it with Saido Ulakana, me and Michelle McDonald. And while we're there, we do a lot of humanitarian work with a specific project that, that has been developed in that area. And the story about how this project, called the Metadana Project, how it came to be, was that uh, a number of years ago, Stephen Smith, Michelle's uh, ex-husband, was doing practice in that area. And he was one of the first people to be in that area doing practice and one of the first white people or Caucasian people to be doing it there. And there was a young woman named Chet Su who was 15 years old at the time who uh, worked on the road in front of where he was practicing. Um, in Burma, you will see many women carrying bricks to do road work. So Chetsu was one of these people, a very young woman, 15 years old. And she was um, a very devout Buddhist, and she was so um, inspired to see him practicing that she wanted to give him a gift. So she presented him with a can of Coca-Cola. Now, he found out later that that Coca-Cola cost her a week's worth of wages. Coke is expensive in Burma. <laughs> but that act of generosity inspired him so much that he decided he wanted to see what he could do for the people of that region. And out of that single act of kindness has developed a project that over the years has built, um, built a primary school, uh, funded... Um, this point, 99, supporting 99 nuns, giving them a living a stipend to help them uh, support themselves, uh, a medical fund for monks and nuns, um, an acupuncture program at the hospital in the area, uh, training Burmese practitioners to um, do acupuncture. So a single act of generosity can have far-reaching implications. Another story that we can think about, a well-known story, is of the Buddha himself. At a certain point in his practice, he had been practicing ascetic practices and finally decided they didn't work very well. And, 
and uh, took a seat under a tree near a river, and Sujata, who was known as a milkmaid, um, is said to have offered him rice milk pudding that nourished him and made him strong enough to be able to attain enlightenment and change the world in the way, the amazing ways that has come out of that. So generosity is a very powerful and beautiful quality. So generosity is a key part of the path of happiness that the Buddha taught. And for us uh, lay practitioners, he said that there's three areas to focus on. Generosity, ethical conduct, which is the second parami, and mind development. One of the shortest summaries of the teachings in the scriptures is, do what is good, refrain from harm, purify the mind. This is the teachings of the Buddha. Do what is good, dana being a prime example, refrain from harm, ethical conduct, and purify the mind. We in the West tend to be fascinated by the purifying the mind part of, of those teachings. And we don't always understand that the three parts are interconnected. Generosity and ethical conduct are the field of kindness in which the flowers of our practice grow. When I say generosity, I want to make it clear that I mean this word very broadly. With generosity, we're talking about acts of kindness, of giving, of service, the gift of our practice, the gift of material, material wealth, the gift of time, Generosity is one of the deepest spiritual qualities for a number of reasons. One is that it acknowledges our interdependence. It encourages non-clinging. And it brings happiness, with, which energizes the mind for meditation. Pema Chodron says, giving ventilates the claustrophobia of self-absorption. I like that. I just read it a few days ago. Giving ventilates the claustrophobia of self-absorption. So it helps us come out of um, a self-absorbed view of the world and one that acknowledges others' interdependence, connectedness, and non-attachment.
time is gone. <laughs> Guess I'll have to guess. Do you have a watch me ocean? You want to, oh, somebody let me use one. Great, that'll help me, like, thank you. Yep, I can see it, thank you. It happened this morning, too. So one morning a number of years ago, I was sitting having my morning tea and watching the birds at the feeder, which is one of the things that, um, one of my simple pleasures in life I like to do. And so I'm watching these birds, and, I'm, and I find myself thinking, I've spent a lot of money on bird feeders and bird food. Have I got my money's worth? Have I gotten you know, a fair amount of enjoyment for all the money that I've paid for bird feeders and bird food? I lived in an area, I live in an area still where there's a lot of bears, and at that point I wasn't as good at keeping the bird feeders from the bears. And, um, they're expensive. <laughs> the bears, one day, one of the bears had my bird feeder on one arm and was running with three arms. I was like, bye-bye. <laughs> so I'm sitting there thinking, have I got my money's worth? Um, and then I saw that that was not a particularly pleasant state of mind, that there was a lot of contraction and tightness in that question. And so I decided to try a different route. I thought, this bird food is my to the birds. It's my gift to them so that they can eat and be healthy and happy as birds can be happy. This felt freer and lighter. But then my mind on its own went even further. There was just me and the birds, each of us fulfilling our role in the universe in an interwoven dance, connected dance. So there was no giver, no receiver, just each of us doing our part in this world. And with that shift, my mind felt open and unburdened with self-concern. This experience mirrors the three kinds of giving that the Buddha talked about. And each level of giving reflects a different level of attachment or non-attachment, and a different level of self-concern or freedom from self-concern. So the first kind of giving he talked about is beggarly giving, where we give with one hand, still holding on to what we have, or we wonder if we should give it at all, or we calculate whether we get what is, uh, what's the, if we get anything from it. So the motivation can be somewhat selfish. Maybe we want to be liked, we give so that we'll be liked, or we give out of guilt or some kind of bargain. And we can see that a lot of self is, is uh, involved in this level of giving. The attachment is still quite strong. But the Buddha said it's still good to give. Even if it isn't the purest giving, it's still better than not giving at all because one is beginning to learn to let go. And so we see that this kind of giving is, um, or this kind of giving is somewhat constricted, but it's still useful. 
It's a great story by Ajahn Chah, he says, from Food for the Heart. He says, suppose you get some apples and you have the opportunity to share them with a friend. You think it over for a while, and sure, the intention to give is there all right, but you want to give the smaller one. To give the big one would be, well, such a shame. It's hard to think straight. You tell them to go ahead and pick one, but then you say, take this one and give them the smaller apple. This is a form of selfishness that people usually don't notice. You really have to go against the grain to give. Even though you may really only want to give the smaller apple, you must get yourself to give away the bigger one. So that's an example of that first kind of giving. The second kind of giving is called friendly giving. And this is where we give more open-handedly and share what we have because we want to. It's easier to let go and there's more metta and compassion. And we start to experience the happiness of giving. We feel joy in seeing that our giving makes others happy. So this is a shift in attitude that I experienced when I thought of the bird food as a gift to the birds. And then the third kind of giving, or the purest kind of giving, is usually called kingly giving. Um, in the interest of gender equality, I would call it royal giving. Uh, we're still left with some classism there, but it's an improvement over kingly giving. Some people, uh, as one person, um, selfless giving. I've heard people call it selfless giving. I could, that's a good one. And this one, we just generously share what we have because it's what... The universe calls for it. It's where it needs to go. And there's no attachment to how it's used or received. And we think of ourselves as only temporary caregivers of what we have. And we allow objects to flow where they most appropriately belong. And so this kind of giving has the least attachment and the least sense of a separate self. So when we understand deeply our interconnectedness, then we go beyond the idea of giver and receiver and just let resources go where they need, they're needed with freedom and lightness. And for me, this, this shift is, goes from what I want to what does this situation call for? It's like taking I out of the equation and what does this situation call for? With this level of giving, we understand our interconnectedness. We understand that others depend on us and we depend on them. And we understand that we're all giving and receiving all the time. With each breath, we're giving and receiving to the universe. I like to look at the lunch plate 
and realize that the whole universe is contained in the lunch. All the rain and clouds and earth and sun and people who've worked um, to bring the food to us and all the people who supported them. And when you go on and on, you realize that the whole universe is giving to us in that plate of food. And then we take it in and it becomes energy that we use to give back. We're all giving and receiving all the time. Generosity is a great practice to heal a sense of alienation. We become a conduit for energy flowing in the world. It's like a garden hose with both ends open. Fresh water flows through. And there's this happiness of connection that we feel when we're generous. We remember those that we give to and we feel connected. When I was in Burma recently, I always bring extra medicine to leave behind. And I um, had some cough syrup. Sometimes I get mild asthma and it helps me sleep. And uh, so I had some cough syrup and uh, one of the monks there that I uh, respect a lot and visit sometimes, he had a cough. And so I asked him if I could bring him some cough syrup, and he said yes. And so we got careful instructions how to take it, and I brought it up to him and gave it to him, and uh, he said he slept better when he took it. So there's happiness remembering that, and there's a sense of connection with him because of the gift that I gave. Another time when I was in Burma, I was walking up the, um, there's the, the monastery is on the side of the river, and so there's long um, stairs all the way up to the ridge. I counted once, there's 500 steps. And um, so I was going up these steps, and uh, this monk was, young monk, about 10 years old, was coming down. And uh, when he got to me, he motioned to me to stop. And so I thought maybe I should get out of the way so he could walk down. And so no, then he reaches in his robe and he takes out a handful of candies. And um, as those of you on the eight precepts know, <laughs> that's dinner. <laughs> and um, so, so he holds it out to me and, and like a good um, American, I just take one. I assume that that's what I'm supposed to do. So I take one, he's like, no, he wants to give them all to me. So um, I take the candies and I remember that boy. There's a sense of connection with him that's very beautiful through that gift that he gave me. So when we feel our interconnectedness with others through the gifts, through the gift of generosity, it releases us from the prison of self-centeredness. And we see that we belong in the web of life. And we feel that the rigid boundaries that separate us from others can relax, can become more flexible. Uh, 
I'll mention Burma again because Burma has been a place that I've been so inspired with um, the quality of generosity and how it's uh, just deeply, deeply ingrained in the culture. So in Burma, too, they like to celebrate other people's generosity. Not only do they enjoy um, the happiness of giving themselves, but they like to enjoy other people giving. And uh, one time I went out to get some uh, Buddha statues, one of my favorite things to do in Burma, shop for Buddha statues. And so I came home at lunchtime, and I had a number of uh, Buddha statues I was giving away as gifts or so um, I had one, and, uh, and they want, there's, there's a number of women who serve us there, um, six women who serve us lunch and all. So they wanted to see what I bought, and so I pulled out this Buddha statue about this big, and in my very limited uh, Burmese, I said, uh, Dana, I understood that. <laughs> Dana, Yekta, that means meditation center. Dana, Yekta, America. So I got him to understand that I was giving this to a meditation center in the United States. And they all immediately dropped what they were doing, put their hands together and said, sadhu, 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 which many of you know means well done. It was just spontaneous, like celebrating the fact that I was going to be generous. It was quite a surprise for me. It was fun. <laughs> I think sometimes, I think, not everybody, but sometimes in the United States, we have sometimes an ambivalent attitude about generosity. Sometimes we see it as a duty or feel like we shouldn't draw attention to ourselves. Or there's, Sometimes there seems to be this um, ambivalence about it. But in Burma, they just celebrate it right out. When I gave Donna to some of the monks this time when I was there, you know, they had me come forward, they had me hold the gift, and then they had me chant about it, celebrating my, my, my merit for giving and, and sharing it with others. It's right out there. It's kind of fun. Our people who, we had people sometimes um, give lunches. That's one thing people uh, do often in Burma is they will sponsor a meal at a monastery like we do here. And... Uh, but when they sponsor a meal there, they, they sit and watch you eat it and enjoy watching you eat it. You can tell it makes them happy to sit and watch you eat it because they're, they're feeling the joy of their own generosity. Last um, summer, I was here for part of the Pa'auk retreat. And one day, um, I came down to lunch. I was waiting in line. And there were some people... Um, uh, I think they were Burmese. They were taking pictures. And so my first thought was kind of like, they're taking pictures? You know, what are they doing? <laughs> and um, then as I got closer, I saw that uh, they had donated a lot of food, and they were taking pictures of people taking the food. They were enjoying their, their own generosity. And then I thought, oh, that's so beautiful. Chetsu by this time is a is a woman in her uh, mid twenties and married, and she has um, now she has a little girl and a little boy. But a couple years ago, the little girl was quite young. She was um, I think she was about eighteen months old, and we went to give Donna to the nuns that I mentioned, 
and she wanted to bring her daughter, so she brought her daughter, and um, and then the nuns would line up and go by, and we'd share the, um, we'd give them the, the funds. So she would put it in her daughter's hand, and then have you know help her daughter hand it out. It was like so beautiful to see her teaching her daughter so young about generosity. So when we're practicing generosity, it's important to look at our motivation. It's very much key to understanding our relationship to generosity. And we notice whether our motivation is selfish, includes self-interest, or whether our motivation is more um, selfless. And if we pay attention to this, we'll see that our generosity will naturally purify itself. Because we will see that when our giving has a lot of self-interest involved, we'll see that it's not as pleasant. It doesn't make us happy. We'll see that there's contraction there. And when our giving is free, freely given, we'll see that that uh, makes us feel connected and happy and the mind spacious and relaxed. And through that paying attention, the mind will naturally purify itself. So the characteristic of generosity, according to the text, is relinquishing. Relinquishing uh, meaning giving up, renouncing, releasing. And all of these hold the idea of non-attachment, which is considered the manifestation of dana. So generosity is a very concrete expression of our understanding of non-clinging which, as you know, Buddha said, is the key to freedom, non-clinging. So I love it because it is such a a very concrete practice that can help us develop that heart of non-clinging, which leads to happiness. When we give, we notice that each time that we give, um, we reduce our attachment And when we give, we make giving a habit, we see that it cultivates um, non-attachment. We can see that giving is a powerful antidote to clinging and attachment. Giving practice is also great because it shows us where we're attached. It gives us a chance to um, purify attachment by stretching ourselves and learning that we don't need to hold on. And we also learn when we don't give. I know that there's been times of great regret for me when I could have given and I didn't. And I learned from that too. 
I was just telling Miyoshin uh, yesterday or today, I can't remember, um, when I was uh, traveling at one point, I was in the airport in Bangkok, and I, I had some confusion about, like, what money I had in, in uh, Thai bot and what money I, I was a little confused, so some um, person had helped me find a taxi or whatever his job was, and I didn't tip him because I was concerned about what my funds, and um, afterwards, it was like I felt so much regret. I was like, wow, you know, he really probably could have used the money, and I certainly have plenty, and I didn't tip him, and it was like, it was such a teaching to me about, um, not wanting to squander opportunities to practice giving, not wanting to um, overlook them. And so then the rest of the time I was in Bangkok, I overtipped everybody. <laughs> it was like, I, 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 that was my way of kind of purifying that action. So when we don't give and then we feel regret, we can learn from that too. So as I said, generosity is about happiness. The Buddha said that generosity brings happiness at every stage of its expression, that we feel joy in forming the intention to be generous and that we feel joy in the actual experience of giving, and that we experience joy in remembering the fact that we have given. And it's said that this happiness of generosity helps us to meditate. Generosity makes the mind happy and light, and a happy mind meditates more easily. The happiness of being generous gives us energy that we need for transformation. It, it energizes the mind. If you remember a time that you're generous, you will probably notice that the mind feels lighter, more flexible, and easier to concentrate. So how are we developing generosity here? One of the most beautiful gifts that we can give in this world is our own practice. When we become happier and develop more peace in our hearts and minds, and then we share that with others, it's one of the deepest gifts that we can give as we become steadier and have deeper understanding, we share that steadiness in this world. And as we learn ways to become free from suffering, we can offer this freedom to those who are around us. Gandhi said, I believe if one person gains spiritually, the whole world gains that much. So what we're doing here is a, a beautiful offering.
in the Mahayana tradition, there's what's known as the Bodhisattva vow, which is the vow to awaken in order to um, dedicate ourselves to the liberation of all of all beings. So it's it's consciously made it's made quite conscious that that's why we're practicing. It's not just about me. It's about everyone, our all beings. It's about sharing our practice. Or as uh, the Dalai Lama said, it's one six billionth about me, which isn't too much. (laughs) There's a quote about practice that has inspired me over the years. It stretches my understanding of generosity. It's by somebody named E.J. Gold, and it came from the Gnosis magazine. He says, there's a kind of school where you arrive saying, what can I get, or how is this any good for me? You see, I had workshops. I figure I must have had 20,000 people through my workshops in 37 years. Most people asked, what is this going to do for me? My answer is always the same. This is not for you. It's not for your benefit. You're not supposed to get anything out of this at all. If you do, you'll be very fortunate, because I never have. All you do is give. That's the whole thing. You just give and give and give. And it costs you to give. And you even have to pay to give. And in the end, you have nothing. Just nothing. Now, if you can handle that, you belong here. Sounds like selfless giving. So our mind development practice is is a great gift that we give. Our sila, or ethical conduct, is another great gift. As we practice, our uh, commitment to non-harming grows, becomes more refined. The Buddha said, now there are five gifts, five great gifts, original, long-standing, ancient, unadulterated, unadulterated from the beginning, that are not open to suspicion, will never be open to suspicion, and are unfaulted by contemplatives and priests. Talking about the five precepts, five great gifts, original, long-standing, ancient. So by living by the basic precepts, lay precepts, we're giving, the Buddha said, we're giving Freedom from danger, freedom from animosity, and freedom from oppression to countless beings. That's a nice gift to give. Giving others the, the gift of fearlessness through our own commitment to integrity.
Another form of generosity that we develop in our practice is giving up our attachment to views and opinions, which cause so much division and separation in our minds and with other people. There's a story of a Korean American Zen temple and some devoted Korean women brought offerings of plastic flowers for the altar. And some of the American students dashed away the flowers because they didn't consider them elegant enough for the temple. And the Zen master told them to put the flowers back. He said, the problem wasn't the plastic in the flowers, but the plastic in the students' minds. Because they were so stuck on their ideas about beauty, they missed seeing the sincerity and devotion that was expressed in the offer. So as we meditate, we can watch the views and opinions that we have and see how attached we are to them and whether we can let go of that attachment. I've taken to adopting the mantra, I could be wrong, as a way to protect myself from becoming too strongly attached to my views and also to protect those that I work with or am around. I could be wrong. It's so easy to develop views and opinions. This was another part of the teachings that in my early years I thought, well, you know, no big deal, views and opinions. But now I see that it's, um, it's one of the main ways that we cause suffering in this world. We do it so easily, too. Last night I pulled up uh, to come here and um, I noticed that somebody was in my parking space. I always park in the spot next to my oceans, and somebody was there. And I thought, well, I'm going to have to talk to that person. They have my parking space. <laughs> well, um, I discovered today that actually the parking policy is different this year. <laughs> the person had every right to park in that space. <laughs> you know. But it was like I jumped so quickly to that opinion, like, oh, I'm going to have to talk to this person. I didn't know what was going on. I haven't taught here since, what, last March. So it was, uh, it was just a great teaching for me to, to see how quickly I jumped to an opinion. And we do that a lot. So it's a beautiful offering in the world to notice when we do that and to learn how to hold our opinions and our views much more lightly. I could be wrong. The beautiful thing about um, generosity is it just grows and grows. It's contagious. <laughs> Thich Nhat Hanh compared it to this um, plant in Asia. It's a member of the onion family, and apparently it grows back in less than 24 hours when you cut it. And the more you cut it, the bigger and stronger it gets. And so Donna's like this plant. As we give, it gets stronger and stronger, and there's more and more to give. When I see others being generous, I feel uh, inspired to be generous myself. One story I heard of generosity that I 
enjoyed quite a bit was uh, apparently after um, the 9-11 attacks, uh, some months later, a, a tribe in South Kenya um, being concerned about uh, those of us in this country, they convened and decided to share their most precious possessions and decided to send 16 cows to New York City. It's so sweet. <laughs> Warms your heart. It's so pure. Makes you want to be generous. We also should never underestimate the, the power of our generosity, even the littlest acts. They can have far-reaching consequences like Chetsu's can of Coca-Cola. Sharon Salzberg uh, describes this very beautifully. This is the first time I've worn my glasses at a Dharma talk. Age, age. <laughs> so she's talking about um, Aung San Suu Kyi in um, Burma. And uh, as many of you know, she's been under house arrest for many, many years. And um, she's allowed to leave the country, but has stayed because she... Um, wants to uh, inspire and serve the people of Burma. And it says here, for a brief period, the military released Suki before confining her again, and she was able to speak and write about her experience. In discussing her spiritual life, Suki wrote, the spiritual dimension becomes particularly important in a struggle in which deeply held convictions and strength of mind are the chief weapons against armed repression. She related how her attempts at meditation had found her due to a lack of instruction. She would sit on her bed, gritting her teeth, trying to practice, but would only become tenser. And then her husband sent her a book that changed everything. That book was Upandita's In This Very Life. Through it, she had learned how to meditate, and it became her main source of spiritual support during those intensely difficult years. I was stunned when I heard that story. A Burmese teacher had come to Barrie, Massachusetts. We created this book, and somehow it ended up back in Burma in the hands of a woman I admired immensely and would have given anything to help if I'd only had an inkling as to how. Whenever I hear someone minimize the value of their good works, I think of how, without designing it, a small group of friends ended up helping to relieve suffering in a way beyond, in a way beyond what we could have imagined. We can never know how our actions will ripple out and affect others. We may, through force of habit, disparage ourselves, consider an action to be inadequate, or resign ourselves to certain mediocrity, but we can't possibly know the end, ultimate result of anything we do. T.S. Eliot wrote, For us there is only the trying, the rest is not our business. From Sharon Salzburg's book on faith.
So through this practice of generosity, which, as I said, it, it can be a practice. It can be a, a spiritual strength that we can develop. It's like a muscle that if we work it, the more we work it, the stronger it can be. So through this practice, we explore the nature of attachment and non-attachment, the nature of clinging and non-clinging, the nature of selfishness and the nature of selflessness. And through this exploration, we open ourselves to a tremendous source of happiness and joy. And we deepen our sense of interconnectedness and belonging in this universe. I want to end with one more inspiring story about generosity and the power of a small act. This is... um, from a book about Pablo Neruda by, um, translated by Robert Bly. So Pablo Neruda is a poet, a Chilean poet, who um, uh, was deeply loved by the people of Chile. At one point he was exiled for his political beliefs, um, and then uh, and later in his life he, he returned when the government changed. He says, one time investigating in the backyard of our house in Temuco, the tiny objects and minuscule beings of my world, I came upon a hole in one of the boards of the fence. I looked through the hole and saw a landscape like that behind our house, uncared for and wild. I moved back a few steps because I sensed vaguely that something was about to happen. All of a sudden, a hand appeared, a tiny hand of a boy about my own age. By the time I came close again, the hand was gone, and in its place was a marvelous white sheep. The sheep's wool was faded. Its wheels had escaped. All of this only made it more authentic. I had never seen such a wonderful sheep. I looked back through the hole, but the boy had disappeared. I went into the house and brought out a treasure of my own, a pine cone, opened, full of odor and resin, which I adored. I set it down in the same spot and went off with the sheep. I never saw either the hand or the boy again, and I have never again seen a sheep like that either. The toy I lost finally in a fire. But even now, at almost 50 years old, whenever I pass a choice shop, I look furtively into the window, but it's no use. They don't make sheep like that anymore. I have been a lucky man. To feel the intimacy of brothers is a marvelous thing in life. To feel the love of people whom we love is a fire that feeds our life. But to feel the affection that comes from those whom we do not know, from those unknown to us who are watching over our sleep and solitude, over our dangers and our weaknesses, this is something still greater and more beautiful because it widens out the boundaries of our being and unites all living things. That exchange brought home to me for the first time a precious idea. 
that all of humanity is somehow together. That experience came to me again much later. This time it stood out strikingly against a background of trouble and persecution. It won't surprise you then that I attempted to give something resonant, earth-like, and fragrant in exchange for human brotherhood. Just as I once left the pine cone by the fence, I have since left my words on the doors of so many people who are unknown to me, people in prison or hunted or alone. That is a great lesson I learned in my childhood in the backyard of a lonely house. Maybe it was nothing but a game two boys played who didn't know each other and wanted to pass to the other some good things in life. Yet maybe this small and ex mysterious exchange of gifts remained inside me also, deep and indestructible, giving my poetry light. Let's sit for a minute. So and tonight with an act of generosity, the sharing of the blessings chant, which is a practice of generosity of sharing our the fruits of our practice with others. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.